I woke up on Saturday morning, I looked at the Google Analytics and saw something like 500 or 600 simultaneous visitors to our website. Most employees would rather have the boss who at least tells them where they stand than the one who doesn't. You're listening to The Growth Show, a podcast that uncovers interesting stories and advice on growth from every corner of the business world. Megan, what do you think about luck? It's tricky. You always hear about those stories about people having a lucky break, right? And you always wonder how much of that is just fate and how much is real planning. Yeah. You know, in this episode, we were really fortunate to talk to a bunch of interesting people, co-founder of Robinhood, CMO of Mozilla, co-founder of Wistia, about how they got lucky. And one of the things that I saw was that Luck isn't fate. <laughs> luck, is, luck is manufactured. Luck is about putting yourself in the right place and the right position to be successful. And it's often that you don't see that until you're able to look back and unpack all of it. I'm Kit Bodner. I'm Megan Keeney Anderson. And welcome to this episode of The Growth Show. First up is a story from Vlad Tenev, the co-founder of Robinhood. His story is all about the day that most founders both dream of and dread, launch day. Let's find out how it went. Probably the the first and most sizable lucky break was actually when we first announced the service publicly. And this was about two years ago now, December of 2013. And what happened was due to the nature of our space, the fact that we're regulated, the upfront costs to uh, starting a financial technology startup are quite a bit higher mm. than just your traditional um, traditional technology startup. And basically, we had to get all of our regulatory approvals for our broker-dealer in place before we could announce publicly what we were working on. So there was you know, a year plus of work before we could even put up a landing page saying this is what we were doing. And there was kind of a question right before we put our product out there whether people would respond well to it. Um, And that's one of those things that you don't really know until you do it. And our expectations were actually quite low at the beginning. So I remember when we were first kind of getting our landing page together, we had this idea that we wanted to collect email addresses and do um, do a wait list similar mm-hmm. to what we'd seen through some other companies uh, such as such as mailbox for one, mm-hmm. but with our own kind of unique twist on it. When we were doing our initial testing, like I said, we just put it up live. We didn't think anyone would see the website. And then um, this was on a Friday night. Within a few hours, we'd seen that someone had cross-posted it to r slash finance, which is a finance subreddit on Reddit, and seemed to be generating a little bit of traffic, but you know nothing, nothing too crazy. So then we went home, went to sleep. I woke up on Saturday morning, and I looked at the Google Analytics and saw something like 500 or 600 simultaneous visitors to our website, which 
I was really shocked by it. I thought it was some kind of issue with our analytics. And then I dug in a little bit deeper and saw that someone had cross-posted that Reddit post to Hacker News. And it had gone up all the way to number three. And at the time, I remember number one was Chinese land spacecraft on moon. <laughs> and number two was uh, Google acquires Boston Dynamics. So pretty big news. Um, didn't think we'd make it to number one on Hacker News, but within 30 minutes, you know, we were right there at number one, uh, Robinhood commission-free stock brokerage. And there was a, a large amount of, of discussion. Um, you know, I called my parents. I was like, oh, look, people really like, like the product. It, it's getting a good response. And I think we got over 10,000 signups that first day before we, we even were scheduled to go live. So um, at that point, you know, press coverage started coming in. We, we got invited to all these TV appearances and it kind of started snowballing from there. Um, but I think about some, sometimes and, you know, I think, you know, we were expecting that we would have a much less enthusiastic reception. And I think ultimately that would have made things a lot harder for us. So it was quite lucky that kind of when we first put it out there, um, we got such such a such a really good response. And I think over the first year, with like very minimal changes to our sign up and, and landing pages, uh, nearly a million people actually joined uh, joined the wait list prior to launch, which was the biggest biggest response to a financial product pre-launch in history. So we were pretty um, we were pretty happy about that. So I think the interesting thing about this is, and you said this later on in that episode, I remember, it's when you nail a product market fit, amazing things happen. And I think that a lot of companies talk about this idea of product market fit. We sort of a buzzword, particularly in the in the tech space, you know, and, and really what Lad is getting down to here is is what that means, which is basically like nailing the problem, right? So... Um, when you look at the comments that came up on Hacker News and that came up on Reddit, they weren't talking about the onboarding experience. They weren't talking about the feature or how well designed this product was. They actually weren't talking about product market fit. They were talking about problem market fit. They were talking about what it addressed. Uh, and I think what struck me about Vlad and about that episode is just how crystal clear his understanding of the problem was. It's how crystal clear his understanding of the problem was. I also think it was how drastic he decided to solve the problem, right? Like he could have easily said, oh, I could, I could do it for half the fees that everybody else is charging and make it a really cheap stock trading application. And that'd be a really good thing for the market. But he, he basically said, no, we're going to take that entire revenue stream just out of our business. We're going right. to throw it out and we're going to make a massive sea change. And it also, you know, helps again that we are going against this established like old financial industry that people don't really have a have a love loving right. relationship right so they were also looking for something new to believe in uh, and so it's like that product market fit with their just 
very drastic approach. They, they yeah. went the full distance there. There was a boldness there. And it's, it's interesting, too, because everybody was trying to figure out how are they making money? Like, how do they, how do, they do this? And I think that's a good sign of, you know, moving strongly away from the status quo of just what's expected about how a, an operation of this sort is supposed to work and really approaching it from an entirely different angle. Yeah, you know, I remember growing up being a kid and like being obsessed with infomercials. Yeah. And, you know, the core question when you watch an infomercial is like, how do they make money? They're giving everything away <laughs> for free, right? And it's like, you know, five-year-old me, it was, it was, that's what I was basically thinking. And, you know, when you think about Robinhood and you think about the situation they're in, is they realize that ah, the vast majority of the revenue here doesn't come from the stuff that people actually visibly see themselves paying for, right? right? It's not, you know, these transactional fees aren't really where the majority of the growth and revenue can come from. It comes from other parts of the financial business where it also turns out people are more accepting of, you know, the practices there than they are on these transactional-based fees. So right. when I th- think about that, it's really interesting. But I also think it's interesting how it kind of got seeded through the market, right? Totally. I mean, it's interesting that just somebody found it on Reddit and said, oh, this thing was interesting. I'll put it up on Reddit because we talk about launching the product, but this was basically like a year before the product launch, all this was happening, right. which was which is crazy. A terrifying Saturday morning when you see all those signups. The thing that's cool is, so um, they it really gained traction on Hacker News, right? That was where the volume mm. came in. But I think what could be missed is the fact that it started in this smaller sort of subject matter expert community of a finance subreddit. And even though there wasn't a ton of volume or activity there, the fact that it started with these people who are most passionate about it and then they cross post it to Hacker News and then that's where it blew up, I think is an important distinction. Um, there's, I think people sometimes treat sites like Hacker News and Product Hunt and these forums now in the same way that old school companies used to treat press releases. They're just like, oh, we're launching, so we're going to post to these, and it'll blow up. But if you don't seed it with people who are really passionate, it'll sit there on, you know, in the forums and not go anywhere. They did a really nice job of finding traction with a group of people that are just incredibly passionate about this and having them bring it to the larger masses. Yeah, and I think it goes back to something you said at the very beginning of our discussion where it was really about the problem and not the product, right? They they nailed the problem that they were solving and the problem is what got people fired up and sharing it and willing to wait to hear about this thing a year before yeah. it was going to happen. And I think too many entrepreneurs, marketers, and everything focus too much on the product, the features, and not enough on the problem when they're originally trying to get something off the ground. And if I were, were listening here, that's one of the things I would take away from this story. Totally. It's an awesome story. Really acute pain point, really well-traveled. Um, I think, you know, looking back 2020, they approached it exactly right. There was no luck to that. Yeah, and the, the follow-up here is like, that had to have been one hell of a year for those guys, right? Imagine. Like, you had all these people interested, and then you're, you're like actively building this thing. Right. Like, the pressure to build something good must have been immense. Uh, must have been immense. But I also think if we want to talk about growth, I think it's easier to inspire, pe- inspire people to build something great when they know there's this built-in audience right. that wants it, right? And I think that is a testament for 
launching really early and mm-hmm. getting things out really early when you can. Yeah. And it gives you focus and immediate feedback. Yeah. Cool. Great story. Well, like Vlad, Megan, our next guest had a dream. A long time ago, Yasha Kekas-Wolf, who is currently the CMO of Mozilla, wanted to get into the tech industry. The only problem, he didn't have any experience. Let's hear from Yasha about how he got his first job in tech. I worked uh, at Yahoo early on, and I, this was uh, 90, end of 97, 98, or 98, must have been 98. In 98, I was right out of college. I'd worked for MTV for a couple of years in film and television. Um, I, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do professionally. Um, I, I literally, one of those stories where I read an article in the San Jose Mercury News about this kind of young company where people had you know, crazy hair and they took their dogs in the office and they rode their bikes around, which is still very commonplace today. Back in the late 90s, it was not. And I, I literally wrote my diatribe to jobs at yahoo-inc.com. I, this is who I am. This is what I've been doing up until this point in my life. Um, here are the things that I think are really important. Here's what I believe we can do as an organization if I'm a part of it. But I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to do. Uh, I, I got a call two days later, and I ended up getting the job starting at Yahoo, starting in sales operations at Yahoo back in the late 90s. But wow, like not a bigger break in my entire life. I had no idea what I would do in technology. I didn't know anything really about what the internet was becoming as much as it is impactful in our lives today. Um, and I just sent an email saying, here are the things that are important to me. I'd love to have an opportunity to contribute to your organization. And I got, I got, I got, I got a call and I got a job. Um, probably doesn't get any bigger, luckier break than that, uh, right at the kind of formative point in my career. Well, now everybody wants to know, what did the email say? <laughs> well, it was, it was about uh, me and how I grew up and how I thought about work and how I wanted to spend my time and how important that was for me uh, and how important it was for me to work with a bunch of people who shared a similar perspective on being able to have an impact into people's lives positively. Like it was very much a kind of preachy, here's who I am, this is what I feel story. And amazingly, um, somebody in the HR department at Yahoo back in the day said, this, this seems like interesting enough for us to give this person a call. Another, uh, another reward of being transparent. I, I I like to think so. Um, I, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, uh, kind of a, with hippie parents, and was always kind of taught to be as open and kind of truthful and transparent about how you feel and what's important to you as possible. And, and while I rebelled about that, I rebelled against that as a kid for a while, and became kind of a uptight, uh, bookish, schooly guy, um, and into the same in college. I, I really feel like those things that I learned early on have been super impactful in, in the way that I've shaped my career. Nice. So, dude, score one for wearing your heart on your sleeve, right? I love stories about people whose passion got them the job, who cared so much about the work that it shone through and became the compelling reason that they got hired. I mean, so you do a ton of hiring, Kip. <laughs> You're doing a ton of hiring right now. Uh, how do you balance that? Like, where, how do you hire for, where do you draw the line between passion and skills? 
It's a great question. I think when you're hiring somebody, passion is the core differentiator, right? There's like kind of a minimum level of skills that anybody needs to, to do that job. Really great passion can sometimes maybe even lower the skill bar a little bit because you believe that person has a huge capacity to learn and that their passion and their drive to be great, be successful, kind of outweighs a little maybe short-term skill uh, shortcomings. But it's a massive part of, of everything. When you are passionate about this and you are open with other people about your passion, just doors open for you in a really unique way. And I think mo- most about a lot about our team here. And the team here is just so passionate uh, about making the world more inbound that it's, it's a huge opportunity. Yeah, there's a, there's a good article that I read this morning, actually, by Des Trainer of Intercom, um, who, and the, the article is titled um, something like Trajectory, Not Current State, um, and how much that matters that you know, you always want to hire for potential and for what somebody can do or what you can see them doing six months, 18 months from now, as opposed to what they what they bring that day to the job. Um, and nine times out of 10, if you've got two candidates, the one with better trajectory potential is, um, is the one you want to go with. Yeah, I think about our conversations when we talk about people that we're hiring. We almost always talk about where do we see this person in a couple of years? What's the impact we see them having? Yeah. What's the next role that we see them having at the company? And, and you know, I think you want to almost plot out that person's career progression for them before they even yeah. join the company because it helps you give a get a good insight onto how they're going to contribute. That's hard though. Like that's hard to figure out in a one time sitting with someone. Um, obviously, with Yasha, it, it poured out of him. He was looking at where things were headed. He seemed to have not just a passion, but an intelligence for that, even if he lacked the raw skills um, at that moment. But I think sizing that up in someone is really difficult. What do you do to size that up? Well, I think part of it, you know, when we talked to Yasha, one of the themes of that conversation was his kind of radical transparency with his team, his life, kind of just who he is 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 built in. When somebody's very transparent and can give you a real clear picture of who they are, you can you can make a much better decision about where they where they're going to go, right? Mm-hmm. When people are guarded and when people are just trying to represent themselves through very specific examples of past work yeah. and not about who they are as a holistic person, it gets much harder to do. Yeah. I think the flip side of the thing is if you're going to build a great team, you know, you, you need a big sample size. You need to be in environments that have growth so that you can interview a lot of people and extrapolate from hundreds of conversations about people you hired and people you didn't hire where somebody might end up. Yeah, so like you've had a ton of experience with that yourself. We've built a pretty big team here at HubSpot. Is there a time that strikes you as, you know, a time where that worked out really well? Gosh, there's so many times that it, it it worked out really well. I think, uh, gosh, I don't even know where to go here. You can you can just say that it was hiring me if you want. <laughs> um, if I had, I wish I could take credit for hiring you. <laughs> Unfortunately, I couldn't. Uh, I was actually going to say it was probably hiring Jenny, who's sitting over in the room next yeah. door. Uh, I, I was like five minutes in my conversation with Jenny, and I was like, I already kind of knew what Jenny would do, and I already already kind of knew that she was going to be great. And I kind of sat there to myself like, why am I here wasting this girl's time? Like, why don't I just leave and tell her she's got a job and we'll, we'll move on from there. So sometimes when, when you, when you have that situation, you you kind of know that. It's funny. Like we, there's a very clear shift that happens in interviews uh, on our team where it's like you move from 
an interview to a sell situation where like in the beginning there the candidate is trying to get you to hire them and then at some point in the interview it clicks and you're like no 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 we we need this person and you start trying to sell them on the company uh, and I think the sooner you can get to that the better for for a candidate and for a company alike I love 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 when an interview moves from Q and A into conversation. The second it moves into conversation about what our real problems are, what our real challenges are, what we're trying to do this year, and I can see that person being in the trenches with me, I'm like, that person's hired. Absolutely. And, well, Yasha's story itself was about getting hired and, and working Yahoo. The, th- the underlying aspect of it to me that I want to make sure we talk about is that the idea of making your own luck. Mm-hmm. You know, people are listening to this episode, and they're like, I don't believe in luck. I haven't had, I haven't had my lucky break. Luck is a function of action, right? It's, it's luck is a byproduct of taking action and putting yourself in situations for luck to to happen. And like that is that is exactly what Yasha did, right? He he said, "I don't know a lot about this place, but it seems like it's the future. It seems like where I want to be, yeah. and I'm going to just lay it all out there, and I'm going to take the action and try to differentiate myself from these other people who might want to work there and not have experience in all this stuff. And he did so in a way that got him that opportunity. He could have easily just said, oh, that sounds like a cool place, and right. never sent that email. It was a cold email. Totally. It, it was to a generic Yahoo slash Inc. box. It's impressive. Like, like literally the black hole of the internet, exactly. right? Like the generic jobs <laughs> email. go to die. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's really impressive. So I, for people listening, I think the key thing here is think about what you want to have happen and take actions to continue to put yourself in a situation, whether it be getting a client, whether it be hiring the key member of your team, whether it be getting the dream job that you want, those things make a massive difference. Uh, it's the people who sit on the sidelines inactive that are the ones that feel unlucky. Yeah, absolutely. So if Vlad's story was about product market fit and Yasha's was about passion and transparency This next story with Chris Savage of Wistio was definitely about determination. Let's hear about Chris's lucky break. You know, I I think luck is about being prepared and doing shit for a long time. So, of course, I think there's a lot of luck, and honestly, probably I don't even know which. A lot of it. (laughs) I probably don't. Like, I think I'm extremely lucky. I think Wistio is extremely lucky. And like, when people say like. Why don't you just do more comp- like sell Wistia, start another company, mm-hmm. go do that? I'm like, well, because I know there's luck, and I know there's timing because I waited like six years for traction. Yeah, uh, and it I w- would be like kind of like looking that in the face and saying mm-hmm. like that that didn't exist. Um, I think there's lots of specific things like there I, there are particular customers that we happen to notice without a system that they had tried us or that they emailed into support or whatever. And we went like above and beyond for these very specific customers Mm -hmm. that ended up turning into incredible partners and turning into, you know, like they're the only, I can't even Mm -hmm. name any of them, but they're like the only company in their industry that you could do that, like a partnership with. Yeah. And like, we did it, you know, and it happened through like just being lucky and on the ball. So six years, six years is a long time to, to call lucky. Uh, he really worked that six years. I don't know that everybody would have stuck with it. I think somebody could have looked at that and said, uh, this attempt was unlucky, didn't work out, somewhere around the three-year mark. 
but he stuck with it. So how long is too long? Yeah, that's a grind, right? <laughs> Six years is a grind. And I think the challenge with knowing how long is too long is it's all a function of the situation. I think what Chris had seen in Wistia and from my talking with him is it might have taken him that long to get really true traction, but in the early days, he had a really clear understanding of the landscape. And part of it was like he knew what the problem was. And he knew nobody was really solving this problem well. And he knew that it needed to be solved, even though it was going to take a long time. And even though he was a little ahead of the rest of the world, knowing that this problem needed to be solved, I think that's part of the problem is how far are you ahead of the market? And then I think once the market kind of caught up with the work that Wistia was doing, then then the luck started to ensue a little bit. Yeah. He's an incredibly, I mean, when you meet Chris, he's an incredibly patient guy. It, it comes out in everything he says. He, he sort of is very focused on, as you said, the problem, the team, what he's trying to build. And he doesn't panic when something takes too long or when um, things work out differently than he might have expected. In fact, the choices he made were really, really deliberate. Uh, and so, you know, it's interesting that he points to this as a luck story, that he points to having good customers and, and treating them well as, as a lucky thing, when to me that's a very intentional and actionable, actionable choice. Yeah, it goes back to the whole making making luck. Yeah. I, I don't see this actually as a story about luck at all, to your point, right? It's, it is a story about a company having discipline, trying to, to treat customers well, yeah. and trying to help them solve their problems and differentiate their support and their product from the rest of the market. And yeah. that's what, at the end of the day, that's what most companies are trying to do. Fail, a few fail, like, can actually make that happen, right? Like, it, it's one of those things where it's really hard to deliver on that. And there's something, you know, we could talk about regionalities. There's something about companies in, in the New England area where the founders and the employees are just, I think, a little bit more willing to just work hard, grind it out, and really make it work. Absolutely. You know, like when we think about that grind, you know, I think you can think about so many things. I think if you talk to a lot of people in the market, a lot of it is around persistence, right? right. I mean, if you look back to the Robinhood example, it took them a year and a half to just get the brokerage license, <laughs> right? Just just to get set up so that they could maybe then build something yeah. and then maybe tell the world that they were thinking and planning about building this thing. And, and like that's not a fun year no. dealing with like financial or institutions and government bureaucracy and everything else just to make that happen. That's that's tough. And you know, I think that's a testament. To probably the best line in that earlier quote from Vlad was like when he called his parents. Right. It's like I called my parents to tell them that people liked it, and it's kind of a byproduct. When you get to that point, you know you've put in the time. You know it's been kind of that that grind mentality to make that happen, I feel like. Yeah, I think the hardest thing in all that is knowing where you are on that path, too. Like, as you're grinding it out, are you at the first stage of many years of more hard work, or is that big break just around the corner? And I think, you know, not letting that distract you is um, is something that Wistia's done really well, um, that Vlad clearly did pretty well. Um, that I think is, is a strong trait for, for growing a business is, is kind of having the, the fortitude to stick with a vision uh, and to not get distracted by time. Yeah, and, and it applies to business. I think it also applies to yourself. You know, I think 
uh, I'm dating myself here, but like when the internet was just getting started and blogging was just a thing, like I remember starting my blog and my wife was a teacher at the time. And so she'd have to leave insanely early in the morning, like mm. six, six, ten, six fifteen, she'd be out the door. And so I would get ready and everything. I'd get her off to work. And then I would basically blog from like 630 in the morning to 830 in the morning. And I did that basically every day for three years or right. something. Right. And that's hard. Like that is, that is a grind, but you have to know what you're working towards and you need to build from that time. Yeah. And it opened up so many doors for me personally. And I think you see that for anybody who's willing to invest that kind of time, uh, as long as that time is spent on the right thing. Yeah. That's the other hard part. It's a, it's a, it's a common refrain, but there's that saying that like every overnight success was seven years in the making or 10 years in the making or 20 years in, a, in the making. And it just seems fast when it happens, but you were building to that for the longest time. Absolutely. And I think uh, the folks that we talked to in today's episode were uh, a testament to that. I think the lessons from Chris are especially good to end on because they really boil down to what luck is and what luck isn't. Luck isn't random. It takes hard work, it takes preparation, and a knack for anticipating where you need to be and then putting yourself in that place. Yeah, I agree. I mean, regardless of where you are in your career, if you're just starting out, if you are founding your first company, if you're six, six years in as Chris was, I think there are really good lessons in that. So for all of you who have stuck with us to the end of this episode, we'd really like to thank you. Seriously, thank you for blocking out the time to join us today. We so appreciate it. Today's episode was a little different than what we normally do on The Growth Show, so we'd love to hear your feedback. Leave us a review on iTunes uh, or send us a good old-fashioned email to growthshow at hubspot.com. Let us know what you thought. Let us know if you would like us to continue this format. It will not go into the black hole of the internet. No, no, we, we, we will be reading and responding to those. Uh, we hope you can join us again on next week's episode of The Growth Show.